11th episode of In The Vitrine. My name is Danny. And I'm Nadia. And today, we'll be talking about two exhibitions that we've been dying to see at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, in specifically, the Mary Quant exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum, as well as Wonderful Things by Tim, featuring Tim Walker's work at the Victoria and Albert Museum, both in London. Mm-hmm. So Nadia got to see both of them. Mm-hmm. I'm very jealous. <laughs> and she was in London recently to do her PhD. Mm. So tell us about mm-hmm. the exhibition. Well, yeah, so I was in London last week to enroll for my second year. Um, and I got the chance to see these two exhibitions. I was really excited mm-hmm. because I've been looking forward to seeing them. And I must say the Mary Quant exhibition lived up to my expectations. <laughs> Maybe even exceeded them because it was just so rich in um, what they showed from the archives and the writings on the wall was amazing as well. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot um, and I especially enjoyed the quotes from Mary Quant because she really liked to drop these you know, um, gems of wisdom yeah. and I think that whatever she thought in the 60s are as relevant then as they are today. Yeah. So I guess it's really... a a topic that was well placed, right? That mm. it's so relevant today. One of the quotes that um, I mean, I'm just experiencing this through images and through uh, exhibition reviews. And stylist said that the Maricon exhibition is a joyful reminder of how fun it is to be female. Yeah, and I really love that because it also goes back to this idea of like the different types of femininity we've been seeing on late on the latest spring summer. 2020 shows mm-hmm. yeah and I mean you know one of the quotes I'm looking at now because I took some images of the exhibition as well um, she said that a fashionable woman wears clothes the clothes don't wear her <laughs> you know and I really like that like mic drop moment you yeah. know that you can kind of feel at the end of that line um, so it was really good because I mean we see so many images of Quant's works um, you know online I mean with now teaching as well I refer to also videos as well that Pate has put up for instance so yeah. there are these like amazing videos I mean if you're interested to look at Mary Kwan's um, shows and collections and interviews you can go to YouTube you can just search Mary Kwan's if you want to be more specific um, type in the word Pate P-A-T-H-E and you will see you know how everything she does is so considered and you can see that as she's talking the wheels in her brain are like mm. constantly moving and she's trying so hard to kind of convey exactly what she means. Yeah. Um, they're not for sound bites, you know, that's really what she keenly feels yeah. uh, is a conundrum or yeah. like a problem to solve, for instance. She reminds me a bit uh, from the way you're speaking about her of designers like Phoebe Philo, like mm-hmm. female women designers who design mm. for women. Yeah. And so if we can find so much information through videos and photographs, what do you think the physical exhibition mm. brings in that was new to you? Well, well, a couple of things um, stood out. So one of the best things about the exhibition is that I got to see the makeup mm. uh, in person. I mean, it's still behind you know, the glass, the glass case, case, right? They're yeah. in the vitrine. <laughs> um, but... You know, it's still amazing because I can see how cute they are. I don't know what other word to use because I'm just imagining like if they were sold now, I would want to buy them. Maybe not even to use, but just to like have it, you know, uh, on my vanity and to kind of see like that iconic flower, right, that Kwan uses on um, all of her products. And 
you know, the colours are so playful as well. There is a real sense of playfulness that comes through an exhibition. Um, the idea that, well, you know, they're still dressed very properly. Um, you know, it's still not risque in any way or not like revealing too much skin, for instance. Um, mm. But it comes across as being very playful and at times sophisticated as well. And I really like how it's kind of like modern, but with a twist. Um, so for instance, if you look at something very simple, like uh, let me take a look at some images I have here. So there was this dress um, she had, which was just like a simple sheath dress, but there were these giant buttons that were on the left side um, of the body. And they are like four big buttons. Um, and it's nice because they are both functional uh, as well as a design element, you mm -hmm. know. And it's really chic um, because it's simple in its colour, but there's something surprising about it that makes you stop and take a second look. Because yep. even like the hem, I mean, you can see kind of same like there's this thing. curvature that, yeah. you know, it just seems so unnecessary and at the same yeah. time very stylish. And often yeah. in fashion history, whenever we're like trying to generalise a decade and then we say like 1960s, Mary yeah. Quant, the first thing we, that the keyword that always comes out is the miniskirt, but you're mentioning now that actually the clothes were not yeah, they, they were quite conservative. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at the clothes now, I mean, on, on the screen, we're just looking at some images that I took um, at the exhibition and Daniela's looking at pictures that people have put up online as well. Mm -hmm. The length doesn't seem very shocking. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not as if, like, it's really revealing, um, you know, the derriere, for instance, or... Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's still quite conservative, I think. Another thing that I found quite um, strong was... Uh, and in the in the independent also mentioned is that looking at the clothes you can see Mary Quant's influence on the British high street then and mm. also today. For example, all of these shift dresses mm. and these silhouettes are silhouettes that I still see in in the clothes that working women wear to the office every day. Definitely. Here. Yeah, because I think, you know, the the fact that she was designing with the woman in mind, like women like herself who not only want to um, dress up to look good, but also dress up to perform, you know, roles um, that are important to them. I think thus, you know, she made clothing that, you know, are classic pieces and will stand the test of time. Um, I also think that what she did really well was to experiment with new materials. Mm. So there was a section devoted to the wet collection. Yes. Um, which she launched in April 1963 in Paris. And it was featuring a new material called polyvinyl chloride, or what we know better as PVC. I mean, it was shiny, it was plastic-coated cotton, and, I mean, of course, at this time, we also have other um, designers like Andre Courage or Paco Rabanne who uh, created clothes using new materials. Yes. But I think for Mary Quant, it's pretty amazing, you know, to see these wet looks. And I've been seeing them return. I mean, when I was in London, I noticed on the streets that there were people wearing, like, really shiny kind of materials as well for their coats. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure whether it's, like, a direct kind of, like, influence from, you know, visiting exhibition, for instance, <laughs> because you never know. Yeah. Um, but it was really interesting to see them up close. And it was also very bold of her to experiment with this. And I think in an interview I saw online 
with her. She did say that, I mean, it wasn't as if it was very easy to make these clothing because there were, of course, like, you know, experimental failures. Like, how do you get the stitch to kind of lay flat, for instance? Mm. Um, there's also, um, I think, an interview with the curator of the exhibition or someone else working on the exhibition who said that, you know, you can see that there's some kind of, like, um, asymmetry as well, maybe, oh, okay. um, within that piece of clothing. But it doesn't really matter, I think, in the end because the overall look is just so fabulous that you would forgive, you know, these tiny kind of details. And how does the fabric... Um, I mean, it's been almost 50 years now, so yeah. how does it stand the, 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 the wear and tear of time? Um, does it still look... Yeah, it looks pretty good. I mean, it looks very shiny for one. <laughs> I think that's like the main thing I was looking at. Yeah. And, you know, I was noticing also on this particular coat that there's this giant safety pin um, that's just put across. And that really reminds me of like certain bags we see nowadays, right? Like with the J.W. Anderson bag. Oh, yeah. You know, with that like true. hook, you know, or like the Philip Lim bag. Again, that's with true. that almost like paper clippy um, safety pin kind of an, yeah. an inspiration over there. I just love the simplicity of her looks. You mm-hmm. know, there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing unnecessary dangling off or mm. um, just being decorative and yeah. I noticed also in the mannequin displays there there is some um, they, they did try to do different gestures to showcase the kind of movement that yes. could be done with those clothing for That's example right. we're looking at an image now where the model has her legs as if she's like taking really long strides mm-hmm. and this kind of relates to the idea of like mobility and being mm. able to move physically but also yeah. as a woman to like move. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's both kind of conceptual as well as, you know, um, it definitely speaks to the youthfulness of uh, Marikwan customers, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're always on the go and you're <laughs> agile and you're energetic and also the fact that like there's a lot of upward mobility they can experience in the 60s. You know, people were um, going out to work, um, teenagers had more of an income or they had money to spend rather. Yeah. Um, so it was really quite fascinating to see all this and certainly the way that the uh, models or rather the mannequins were displayed was added to the exhibition as well you know it didn't feel static at all and there was a lot of contextual material as well for Mm -hmm. us to see so for instance we could see like paper bags or paper boxes or blown up kind of advertisements in magazines yeah and it was so amazing to see all of it together because then you really felt that you were experiencing this as if you were a customer about to (laughs) buy something in 1960s london um and yeah, it's just really fabulous all in all. And I also like, um, you know, the like I said, the wall text is amazing. Mm-hmm. And you can see that there's a lot of um, interesting kind of wordplay as well. So for instance, one of the... Um, one of them said quantities of quant, <laughs> you know. And it was about how um, Mary Quant said fashion must be created from the start for mass production with full knowledge of mass production methods. So she knew from the get-go that she wasn't going to be like a very exclusive Good kind of her. a yeah kind of a fashion designer. She wanted to design for the masses. She wanted her clothes to reach as many people as possible. And I think that was such a great premise to start from and also why she has such an enduring legacy. I think so too. And another thing, I thought that the show was so well thought of too curatorially mm-hmm. because the kind of activities that they have done to go along with the exhibition, I'm always curious to see how... Um, 
museums and, ex and fashion exhibitions engage with their audiences. And here I can see that one of the activities they are doing is something that anybody could take part on, mm. which is to, you can download a paper, an original paper pattern of a Mary Quant design mm. called the Georgie dress. So anybody could download this, print it out on their printer and have a piece of Mary Quant's design. And I'm sure in the making of the garment, um, the person would also understand the construction methods mm -hmm. and also how it would have felt to create a garment like this and then to wear a garment like this. Yeah. And, um, you know, speaking about understanding the construction of garments and all that, I mean, she also tried to um, use all kinds of influences for her design. So there's another section called Subverting Menswear, mm. where she, you know, said it's like borrowing from the boys. <laughs> and I really like that she used um, fashion to question, you know, gender rules, um, even back in the 1960s. Yeah. And recently, you know, I've been reading about how, um, like in Mexico, in Wales, and in Taiwan, there's been talk uh, about making gender-neutral uniforms mm. for, um, for school children. And yeah, when I was going for this exhibition and I was thinking about those pieces of news as well, I thought like, wow, you know, she was really such a revolutionary figure in the 60s. Like, she thought of all these things. Yeah. Um, and even, okay, one surprising thing from the exhibition was the underwear. Mm. So I didn't know that she made lingerie. Um, and I also oh, don't even think I want to use lingerie. Of, yeah. <laughs> because lingerie has such sexy connotations. Yeah, right? But she didn't use like lace or anything. So it was really very, um, again, kind of plain um, bralettes or like high-waisted um, bottoms. Mm -hmm. Let me just look at yeah, it. Yeah, very modern. Very modern. And, you know, something that I would wear today um, that I'm always looking for, I don't... Well, I don't know whether I should say this <laughs> in the podcast. But I don't enjoy lace underwear because I don't think it's very comfortable. <laughs> okay, so there. There you have it. Um, but, you know, the, the things she has put up, they look really chic. Um, again, featuring that iconic daisy. And there are some, like, whimsical images as well. Um, but certainly they look like, you know, if you if you were to reproduce these today, I think they would be sellouts. Yeah. And I love that house vest that yeah with a marabou for yeah <laughs> yeah so it's really fabulous so there's this idea of like okay you know what everyone can have fun I mean the word fun was something that I kept thinking about as I was going through the exhibition mm -hmm. there was a real energy to the show and everyone was so excited to see I mean That's when amazing. I went you know it was crowded yeah. but you know um, it, it was so positive as well you know everyone was enjoying the exhibition and reading all the bits of information so she did say um, so one of the quotes uh, for underwear from Mary Quant is foundation garments needn't be surgical get a birthday suit and be your own sweet self <laughs> so that's also really cute you know um, it's like championing kind of like self-love and being comfortable in your own skin um, and I think it was also because she wanted to create um, this underwear range that went with her garments as well and her garments use lycra for comfortable yet barely visible support, according to the wall text. Mm. So it was really cool. And um, magazines that featured this apparently would put the the women in this Q-form underwear range. That's why it was called Q-form. Mm -hmm. um, and it would be worn by models in dynamic poses to show that they allowed for unrestricted movement. And I know we said something about how like the bralettes are very much you know um, contemporary yes. for us. 
But I think it also spoke to how in the 60s, you know, if you think about models like Mary Quant or um, Jean Shrimpton or Penelope Tree, that they had rather childlike physiques as well. Yeah. So it was kind of looking at that um, body shape yes. too. Yeah. So that was good. And um, like I said, the makeup was really great. So... This is an image of the makeup that Danny and I are looking at now. Um, yeah, it's fun. It's very fun. And, you know, it's like, again, with the daisies. But it's sophisticated as well because, you know, the daisies are in silver. Um, the boxes, I would guess, were white, but now they've kind of yellowed. Yeah. And I remember that there's definitely a YouTube video um, about how the makeup was made. So it would be like plastic trays and the colours would be inserted and it would be in like paper boxes as well. So it's like affordable, you know, and it's not just for like grown women. It was about experimentation. Mm. And also, you were telling me of, um, about how actually Mary Quant was also sold in Singapore. Yes, that's right. So um, recently I gave a lecture about Singapore fashion since the 1960s to my students, just yesterday actually. <laughs> and um, I was telling them about how there were uh, boutiques in Singapore that imported um, fashion labels from Europe. So like from London, from Paris, and Mary Kwan was definitely one of them. Uh, Biba as well, Jean Muir, uh, Bill Gibbs. Uh, this shop was called Glamourette. Ooh. Yeah, it's a very good name for a boutique. And um, so Glamourette was a shop in Singapore in the 19... I think it started in the late 1950s. It was actually really revolutionary because in the late 50s, um, we still had lots of people um, buy fabrics to be made into clothes at, you know, tailor's shops and things yes. like that. So actually, uh, what happened with Glamourette was that they, they did that to begin with. So they ran this thing called Seasons Taylor. It was a husband and wife team. Uh, Francis Chung and Xiao Mi Xiu. And, um, but soon after that, they realised, like, you know what? We're not going to do this. We're going to do ready-to-wear. Yeah. So oh, okay. Glamourette was actually the very first um, luxury multi-brand boutique in Singapore. Wow. It opened in 1958. Uh, it sold... First of all, it's so high fashion to Singaporeans and wealthy customers uh, who came from like Indonesia and Brunei. Yes. Um, but eventually, in the nineteen sixties, like I said, they brought in you know all of the the big fun names like yeah, like Mary yeah. Quant. I mean, Singapore because it's a port city has always been somewhere like a destination where different mm. uh, nationalities would come to or yeah. pass through, and That's so right. it makes sense that it would have imported a lot of, like, European goods. Yeah. And it would have been a place that people would travel to to get their latest season. Yes, exactly. And, you know, um, youth culture was not just, you know, um, rampant in London. So in Singapore also, uh, we had, like, bands come through to perform, yes. like the Rolling Stones, for instance. Yes. And that actually gave birth to, like, lots of musical bands in Singapore at the time. Yeah. Um, We've got a whole genre called Singapore Agogo. And yeah, like, or Pop Yeah Yeah. Yes. And then when yeah. you look at the vinyl covers of those, they're mm. fabulous. Like, the yeah. styling. It's, it really is... Um, you can see that they really follow the trends. And That's right. From, yeah. from Europe. 
Yeah, so it wasn't in isolation, but also it wasn't just like a copy and paste sort of thing because yeah. they would mix it with like their own influences. So for example, like Pop Yeah Yeah was like Malay songs kind yes. of in the, you know, that like very Beatles, Rolling yes. Stones sort of sound. Yes. Um, so it's, it was really cool for me to kind of share this with the students. I don't think they were aware that, you know, there was such a rich fashion landscape, uh, rich musical landscape that was um, kind of active in Singapore at the time. Uh, and also, I think I was talking to you about this other boutique called Trend Boutique. Mm-hmm. So Trend Boutique was m- more similar to what Mary Quant or Biba was trying to do. Um, Trend like Boutique was started stop. by yeah, it was started by Rabia Ibrahim. She's one of the four Ibrahim sisters. Wow, um, they so, look so fabulous in that photograph. They're I wearing know. like this white rimmed soft hat. I know voluminous sleeved um, blouse with a vest. Yeah. Oh, and their hair looks like Farah Fawcett. Yes, definitely. <laughs> so, like, um, Rabia Ibrahim um, started this thing called Trend Boutique, and eventually there were 23 Trend Boutiques, wow. and she even, I think, had, like, stores overseas, like in Hong Kong, for instance. Um, and they would make these um, clothes that were very much, you know, fashionable and kind of, like, after the style of Mary Quant. Um, and other designers who were really popular at the time. And these were targeted at young working women in Singapore. You know, yeah. and the fact that they had 23 boutiques, you know, attests to the fact that like, you know, they were really successful. Yeah. The very first store that they had was at the Bata building um, along South Bridge Road. So in oh. City Hall. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's just amazing to see the images as well. You know, the way they style uh, their clothes and the way they... Yeah kind of embody that young, you know, free, like, lady unencumbered by, like, life's responsibilities and all that. You know, it's just so fabulous. I would love to see more of that. Uh, Those images. Yeah. And one day you can do a presentation on that. I could. And you can also find these images on the National Archives Singapore website. Yeah. So that's very helpful for me when I'm presenting uh, and preparing for these uh, presentations. So I think um, one last thing we can talk about with Mary Kwan's exhibition, coming back to it, mm-hmm. would be the fact that, you know, she did everything. So usually for designers, we would think like, okay, they just do clothes, you know, or if they did accessories, it seems like a like an addendum or like a side project almost. But I think Mary Kwan thought of things from head to toe, you know, so there was like the makeup, there was the clothes, there was the accessories, like sunglasses and um, mm. shoes, of course, you know, so she had like amazing shoes as well. And yeah. she made them with plastic. Yeah. So there's also a really good party um, video about how she created these new plastic shoes that were comfortable <laughs> and molded to the feet. And we saw some of these uh, at the exhibition as well. Did they show the sole as well? I think they did because some of them were kind of turned upside down. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's that that famous. um, I remember reading about how it would leave a trail of daisies as you walked. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's really cute, isn't it? it Yeah. It's a cute image. Okay, you better not do anything naughty while wearing very bundles because <laughs> you will be found out. Um, but one last whimsical thing about the exhibition, which I loved, were the dolls. Um, oh, wow. So there were these tiny dolls. They look like Barbie dolls, but I don't think they are. And you could also get these, like, I don't know what to call them, but like maybe cut out kind of like paper bits of dresses or bags or things like yeah, that. And you could dolls. dress, yeah. yeah, you could dress the dolls. Oh, you could dress the actual doll with paper yeah. clothing. That's so cute. I don't know if you played with these when you were a kid, but I loved paper dolls growing up in Bolivia. 
I know, I love them oh, too. Yeah, and I, I remember that I always wanted a Barbie doll, but I never got one. It's <laughs> one of the saddest things. Um, but there was, um, yeah, there are these like collaborations that Quant and this uh, commercial artist Joanne or Joan Collis did, where they captured the spirit and style of Daisy Doll for a series of children's activity books. Oh. So some of them were stickers as well. What I'm looking at, maybe not cut out so yeah. much as and stickers. What, what kind of scenarios would they be in? I don't know because I just see like it was open up to the page where you could yeah. just see the stickers um, and all the accessories and clothes yeah oh my gosh you know I would still love to have one now like I would play with this sticker book <laughs> I have never I have not outgrown my love for stickers um, so it's it's really cute and so all in all I have to say that the exhibition was amazing um, because it was so complete it was so well researched um all the information was marvelously put together. I felt compelled to read everything. And yeah, so was I Mary think Kwan it was a really very, good exhibition. Was she very involved in it as well? Okay, I do not know about that. Yeah, yeah. me neither. It would be nice to find out what she thought of it. That's true. Yeah. Okay, we will do more research online very and see nice. whether there's something there. Well, now we move yes. on to the controversy. <laughs> <laughs> well, to the... Um, Tim Walker Wonderful Things exhibition. So okay. from what I read, it yeah. said that it said that um, um, well, Tim Walker calls it more of a end of a chapter, not really a retrospective. And this is his third exhibition okay. that he's had of his work. Mm. And I have said before that I find um, photography exhibitions a bit challenging mm. because you usually see photographs in situ, right? Like okay. in the advertisements or in the magazine. Mm. And so to have to confront like hundreds and hundreds of photographs at once yeah. I feel can be a bit overwhelming yeah what did you think okay so I did not enjoy the exhibition but I'm not sure whether it was because I had seen Mary Quant before that oh okay like right before and I I was like full of you know expectations for the next I was like yeah like give hmm. me more that's you know? interesting no? because then on one hand museums would want to kind of um do really good exhibitions yeah. and but at the same time it's like you can get fatigued mm. seeing too much at once mm. it's true so I might be biased but um, well I'll tell you my experience I'm going to the Team Walker exhibition so um, it started out really promising because when you enter the exhibition room there's this like I don't know, wavy sort of rainbow lights, you know, that, that yeah. greet you. Wow. So you're like, ooh, you know, I'm going into like a magical <laughs> world. I'm going to the world of Tim Walker. I'm going to expect wonderful things. Okay, so that's also something else. Like, you know, when you name your exhibition Wonderful Things, you better make sure <laughs> you're presenting wonderful things. But like, as soon as you walk in through that entrance, you're just like thrown into this very starkly white room. So it felt like, oh my gosh, I've woken up from my dream. Like, I barely oh. begun my dream. And then now I'm in this, like, really white, like, you know, um, I don't know, very... What is the word for it? Like, almost surgical theatre kind of white um, room. Yeah. And then there were these photographs, but they were also quite small. So they were almost like, you know, A4 size, maybe, like, as you would read them in a magazine. Oh, so then okay. you had to go up to them, like, one by one and look at them. And it just seemed really tedious, almost. And it didn't feel magical at all. I think, for me, lighting is so important. And if I wanted that mood to be kind of... Um, lasting and I wanted to be in that dream state which I feel is what Tim Walker is about I never think of him you know in the colour white I just always think of him in like a riot of colours maybe very rich very sensual so I thought the choice of like colour for the room like the walls and the the floor and the lighting was just 
too much mm. you know so it just threw me off guard and I think from then on I just decided like oh you know I, I hope I'm impressed by the following rooms but it just didn't seem to be mm. so um, was there a lot of behind the scenes like um, maybe um, insights into his process I don't think so I I want to say that there was but I don't think so I mean the images themselves the photographs themselves individually were very beautiful so I just felt that it was like a lost um, it was a pity that like for instance some of them were not blown up for instance it would have been nice to you know when you go for an exhibition you want to see things that you have not seen before so if you know you're already familiar with the photographer's work as one would probably be if you're going for an exhibition right you want to find out more then I want to see something that I'm like, oh my gosh, like the scale of it is just so amazing, you know, to see it life-size, for instance. Um, so, for example, on one of the, the first walls, I mean, we just see Tim Walker himself with one of Madonna's blue sheep. So that was like, okay, got it. I mean, that seems kind of interesting, but like, I want to know more about the, the photographer. Um, although, of course, he had the disclaimer that it's not a retrospective, yeah. you know, but it still would have been nice to have more context. And there are all these fabulous images, like on one of the walls here, I'm seeing that, you know, there's this, um, you know, there are these labels they have where they tell you what each image is of. So there are like these placements to show you um, where a photo was taken, where it was shown. And on this particular wall, there are like one, nine, ten, there are 11 photos, you know, like just crowded with each other with like no context for how they belong to each other or mm. like, you know, what's interesting about putting them together. Yeah. Um, so oh, that was a pity. a pity. How yeah. about this? I, I saw a lot of this image in, a lot of images of this installation in my feed. Yes, I have that image too. Um, so so there's Alice in Wonderland, right? Yeah, but you know... It, Okay, it looks nice in the image you you are seeing on another magazine, but it's literally like a vitrine, like a standalone vitrine, like n- nothing else around it, and it's just, I guess, the setting yeah. for an, an image. So it always seemed like whenever there was something else other than photographs, that it was very isolated, like in a vacuum, and you can't really interact with it. It's like really... Um, kind of like on its own and you're like okay got it but like I don't see how this enhances the experience of going to the exhibition Mm. um and then I think if you think of behind the scenes um there was this part where I think they had some stories about you know who was photographed and why and like some little bits of information but I felt that the whole exhibition seemed rather incoherent to the muse- the, the exhibition goer. Mm. Um, so it was like, okay, this is the room and this is the next yeah. room. And I would have liked a more um, sort of guided feeling to visiting the exhibition. You know, like I wanted to be guided to like, okay, this is the room that does this. And then I go into this room and it makes sense. There's some kind of chronology to it or a thematic kind of thing going on. Um, but it just felt really like, I, I don't know, very... What is the word for it? Like, um, disjointed. Disjointed. That's right. Yeah. And do you feel like maybe the setup mm. or the scenography kind of overwhelmed the work, or it might have done? Um, because when I see fashion photography exhibitions, like I've seen, or photography exhibitions, like I've seen Guy Bourdin, and that okay. was very good. Like you yeah. could see his film negatives. You could right. see how he selects things, and oh, you okay. could see. Um, like the the thematic rooms were like uh, they were showing how he for example fragments the body or mm. how he does this or how he does that through the mm. photography 
Yeah, I think that's what's missing in exhibitions that I do not enjoy. You know, the idea of like, or the ideas behind the works, the processes, but processes are so fun to, to look at mm. because that's something you wouldn't think about or you wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, so that would have been really nice. Yeah. And yeah, no, I didn't. Oh, that's didn't such feel a pity. It's such a, such a beautiful image maker that it's such a pity that it couldn't be translated in an exhibition context. But maybe some things are just meant to be best communicated in other ways. Maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I think I, I'm very sure that there was a lot of thought put into the selection of the images that made it to the exhibition. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think, you know, the, the reasons why or like, you know, the effort kind of came through to, to the, the exhibition goer, at least not to me. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I might be biased because I honestly, when I first wanted to go to V&A to see the exhibitions, I wanted to see the Tim Walker one first. But then I ended up thinking, oh, there's also Mary Kwan, let's go and see that. And then I did that first. And then it was like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. And now I'm <laughs> going to this. So yeah. um, there's something about, I guess, exhibition fatigue as well. Like sometimes when you see too much, like you yeah. said, you know, you might not enjoy it as, as you thought you would. All right. Well, mm. Tim Walker, we still love you. <laughs> yes, we still very much love you. And I must say that it was nice to see some of my favourite Tim Walker photographs, mm-hmm. you know, in person again. And he so did that a was whole nice. bunch of new ones too for the exhibition. Yeah, so that was really nice. Um, I think he looked at some uh, artefacts, right, yes, in the museum, from the museum to make new images. Yeah, because yeah. apparently this whole thing started because he had taken photographs of their objects a few years ago. Mm. And... Yeah, and I think it also attests to his genius that, like, you know, based on the few setups that we saw in the exhibition, that he could translate that so well on camera and make it seem so magical. So I think that was something I took away from it that was positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, on that note... Well, we hope you enjoyed our review of these two exhibitions. Yes. Um, if you have thoughts as well, feel free to let us know. Um through Instagram comments or Facebook or email us. We love to hear from you. Um, So that's all from us today. Till the next time. Bye. Bye.